collect it. All right, Acts chapter 27 is where we're going to our way to uh, this morning. And as you guys make your way and we continue our journey through the Acts of the Holy Spirit, uh, as we've seen over these last several chapters and several months in the life of the Apostle Paul is that his heart's desire was really to make a maximum impact for the kingdom of God. He desired to see the name of Jesus proclaimed throughout the known world. And in fact, his calling by God in, uh, early on in Acts was that he would be a minister to uh, the Gentiles and to kings and even to the children of Israel. And so Paul desires to have a maximum impact. And, and as he prays through this with the Lord, he's thinking about where could the maximum impact take place? Well, where else than the capital of the known world? Uh, Rome, right? So he desires desperately to go to Rome. He's praying through this with the Lord. He, he wants to go and make his way that direction. And when we arrived in Acts chapter 23, what we see is the Lord uh, gave Paul a reassurance to this. In Acts 23 verse 11, what we read is, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And so Paul was getting his marching orders. He was lining up with the will of God. He was headed to Rome. This is exactly what the Lord said. And yet, did he understand what all that journey would entail? Isn't that interesting? Paul, what uh, the journey was going to look like, but he knew where the destination was. It was in Rome. He had no idea that it was going to involve uh, two years of incarceration, uh, a typhoon, a shipwreck. And as we uh, study through today, I think this is often how we operate in the will of God. We, we get a word or we have this, this feeling like this is what God has for me. This is what direction he has in my life. And yet, uh, we don't know all the points in between. We know this is his call, but we don't understand all the storms that can creep up along the way. And, and one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Psalm 119, verse 105. Many of you know it by heart. It says that the Lord is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But here's the thing. Um, what we often don't realize is those are, are two very distinct phrases that the Lord gives us. He is a lamp unto our feet, but he is also a, a light unto our path. When we think about the light that he is to our path, the, the light at the end, the, this, this obtaining of God's peace and being with him fully and knowing him completely for all of eternity, that's a light unto the path. What encouragement. Except, I don't know about you, most of the time, practically, uh, I go around with a lamp unto my feet. <laughs> I, can, I can see about to the end of my toes, and that's about it as I navigate. I know there's a light out there at the end, but, but this is all the more information uh, I get most of the time when it comes to what the Lord has put on my heart. And so often our nation is because we can only see the light, or the only see the lamp to the end of our feet, what do we do? We begin to cry out as we've been given this word of the Lord and a part of his will. We, we cry out to him, oh Lord, what are you doing here? And so I think about a short story. Uh, as we were getting ready to plant this church, God called us uh, specifically to buy the building before we ever secured our house. In fact, he took me to Haggai, where <laughs> Haggai is told, you've concerned yourself with paneled houses, but you've forsaken the house of the Lord. He said very clearly, buy the church, and I'll take care of the home for you. You've got it backwards. And so we, we bought the church uh, operating under God's will. And this picture up on the screen, uh, this is a picture of the creepy guy that was staying in the camper on the church parking lot almost a year before the church uh, was ever, would ever have its first services. So already beginning out, uh, things look a little bit weird. I'm now living in a camper, working at Rural King. My family's in 
Farmington, Missouri, so I'm traveling back and forth. God provided wonderfully, but the first week that I was there, I had worked all day at work, and I came back, and believe it or not, this church actually has a shower in the basement. Now, it's not the most glorious shower. Uh, the, the head hits you right about in the middle of the chest, so I don't know who they built the shower for, but it was clearly not a grown adult. And yet, it was still a shower. It was going to be hot water. In the, you know, this is January, so I'm thankful to the Lord. And I, I make my way on that first evening downstairs to the shower, and I turn the water on, and it's ice cold. And so I'm thinking, well, this is probably just going to take a minute to warm up. It's an old building. And I waited, and I waited, and the water, it, it seemed to actually get colder the longer I waited. And so I, I find the water heater, and I put my hand on it, and it's ice cold. There's nothing happening here with the water heater. And so, no problem, I know an electrician. It's an electric water heater. I get a hold of my good friend Nathaniel, and he comes over the next day, and he finds the water heater was disconnected inside the breaker box. Praise the Lord! There's hot water. And so the next night, I'm now going on 48 hours, and, and I'm a grown man. Uh, I needs me a shower. Things were getting a little bit stinky. I'm not doing a lot of physical labor, but uh, it was time for dad to get a shower. And so I head back downstairs again into the shower where the head hits me in the middle of the chest, and I turn on the water, and it's ice cold. <laughs> I mean, but here's the thing. He just turned it back on. It's probably going to take a minute. I let it go again. It gets colder as I let it go. And now I'm beginning to feel the anxiety that happens in the midst of God's will. So I make my way into the water heater. I put my hand on it. It's hot. And yet I have no hot water. And this is the point where I find myself usually in God's will. I begin to cry out. God, what's a shower? I'm in a creepy basement in a creepy shower. I'm standing in a camper. All I want is a shower, right? And then I hear in the midst of the and the complaining, have you tried the other handle? Wait a minute. You don't suppose somebody switched the hot and the cold yeah, so I turn on the cold water and literally melt your skin off hot water, but it didn't matter, baby. I'm taking the hottest shower I can take. And so this is oftentimes where we find ourselves as the Lord allows storms in our life. And so we're going to look at storms in the life of the Apostle Paul. And yes, anytime I can incorporate an REO Speedwagon a song title into a message, I'm going to do it. So we're going to look at riding the storm out. Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of, I have no idea how you pronounce that word, we put the sea, we put the sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. And Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And so as we begin, Paul is now making his way from Caesarea Maritime, where we've spent the last couple weeks. He is now heading to Rome. The will of God is now active and taking place on his way, on his journey, and he's being guided by a centurion, a guy named Julius. Now, little side note, throughout the New Testament, centurions are always looked at in a positive light. And so the Lord looks at the leadership of every centurion we come across, and they're, uh, rule, or they're commanders of a hundred men, and they're always looked at favorably. Now this centurion is no exception. He has this relationship with Paul, he meets him, and immediately he gives, Paul's, he gives Paul favor. 
And I think that's interesting because you see Paul's conduct and his character showing through, and as a result, he actually gains favor with men. That is something we can reflect on in our own life, that as we allow the the word of God and this reflection of Christ to show to the world around us, we might receive some persecution, but in large part, you will find favor among men. Now, he isn't there alone. In uh, verse 2, Aristarchus is mentioned, and you'll notice with me, the writer here also says he was with us. It's a, a personal pronoun in the first person because Luke, the writer of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, is writing this, and he's there with Aristarchus and Paul. And so Paul was not left alone is the point to this. He actually has friends that came along uh, with him. And, and Aristarchus is a guy that Paul even refers to in Colossians chapter 4 as his fellow prisoner. He was a friend that stuck with him through very difficult situations. The reality is this isn't a, a Disney dinner cruise these guys are on. I mean, this is a difficult journey across the Mediterranean Sea making their way to Italy. And so uh, do you have an Aristarchus in your life? Do you have a friend that will stick with you? I would encourage you uh, to look for that person. Look for that one that would stick with you even through the challenges and the storms that might arise. Now, verse 4 as we continue. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, city of Lycia. And there a centurion found an Alexandrian ship setting, uh, sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. And when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis, the wind was not permitting us to proceed. And we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. And so what we see is Paul is uh, documenting, or excuse me, Luke is documenting, <clears throat> excuse me, all of these different stops they're making now, no doubt collecting passengers and freight and perhaps other prisoners as they're making their way back to Rome. Now verse 8, and passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now verse 9, now when much time had been spent and was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of uh, cargo and ship, but also our lives. And so Paul gives them a very positive message. I perceive uh, we're all going to die if we continue on this journey. Thank you, Paul, for coming along. Now, it's interesting to note that the fast with a capital F should be uh, highlighted in your Bible. That fast he's referring to is the fast of uh, Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. Now, it's, inter it's interesting and important to note that because it gives us an idea of the time of year that they're sailing. Yom Kippur takes place at the, after the Feast of Trumpets at the end of September, 1st of October. And this was a time that uh, was very dangerous to set sail in this region because of winter typhoons, because of incoming storms. And so Paul is giving them a warning, some because of his uh, guidance of the Holy Spirit, but other because of just practicality. Now, Paul is a tent maker. So what gives him any kind of expertise in the field of uh, sailing ships. Well, if you looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, you'd note that Paul has some very real-world experience. He said that uh, he was shipwrecked three different times, and a night and day he spent in the deep. And so Paul is looking at this and going, look, I've got some real-world experience. I'll be able to drive the boat, but I can look at the seasons and tell you this is not a good idea. 
And so he recommends that they do not continue on at this time until the season has passed. Now, verse 11, Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And so the centurion, he listened to Paul. He'd already given him great liberty on the ship, but then he also listened to the crew and the, the owner of the boat itself. And what he decided to do was take the majority rule. These guys all say they can make it. Paul, you're outvoted. We're going to continue on on this journey. Now, verse 12. And because harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. In verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. And so what's happened is these guys had decided against Paul's, uh, Paul's beckoning not to go, to go anyway. And they continue out along their journey, and soft winds begin to blow. They think this is actually a good sign, and so they continue on the journey. Now, a few things to note when it comes to hearing the will of God in our life. Here's a few ways uh, not to hear from the Lord, I should say. Uh, first, notice with me these sailors were impatient. They did not want to wait around, even though the seasons and their experience probably told them this was not a good idea. In, in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, at the end of that verse, this is what the Lord says through the pen of Isaiah. He says that whoever believes, speaking of God, will not act hastily. That belief in God causes us to actually slow down, take a minute, not act in haste, not impetuous, quick decisions, but to rely upon the Lord. And so these guys were acting uh, rashly and, and being impatient about the weather at hand. The next thing you'll note is uh, they decided to take a vote. They decided to vote on what was a really good idea. And I think that's important for us because this might not be popular for you to realize, but it's nonetheless true. Um, God is not into democracy. He himself is all about uh, kingship. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He doesn't need our vote. He doesn't need my opinion for his will to be done and for his kingdom to come. And so these guys were interested in everybody getting a say in this, and yet if it's not the will of the Lord, it doesn't matter how many people vote yes. And so they, they took a vote rather than relying upon God. The to note is they tested the winds. They started off, and then the soft winds began to blow. And what does that look like? It looks like circumstances, right? Oftentimes, we can allow circumstances to dictate our direction, and it's very dangerous in our life. Because it can look like we're getting all signs are pointing to yes, and yet if we do not seek the Lord in it, and He's not in it, it can appear like the soft winds that these sailors just experienced it. So we should not allow circumstances to dictate our direction. Now, finally, note with me that they were seeking personal ease. And what I mean by that is these guys knew that the place that they had stopped, where Paul said, we shouldn't go any farther, this was a little bitty uh, podunk town. They were not excited about this harbor because there was no nightlife. There was no place for them to go. These are sailors. They knew that they're going to have three months stuck in this place. And there's no restaurants, there's no movie theater, there's no bar to go to. We are not hanging out in this place for the next three months. Let's instead go to Phoenix, where there's a whole lot more happening. There's probably Suns games going on. They're excited about going to an area that is far more populated. They were seeking 
comfort. And, and this is also not all that popular, and yet I think it's good for us to reflect upon that God is far more concerned with our character than he is our comfort. God is not as concerned. It doesn't mean he wants you to always be uncomfortable or wants you to be miserable, but what he is really looking for you and I is build character. He is looking to create that in our lives. And so these guys were looking for comfort, trying to forego character, and the reality was they were outside of God's will. Now, continuing in verse 15. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. In verse 17, when they had taken it, on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the si- something sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And so what we see is they were uh, already in a tough spot. The winds were blowing, and what they did is they took the ropes and they actually tied them around the hull. They tightened things down. They ratcheted that thing together to, in order to withstand the strong wind and the waves. And so they ratcheted this puppy down. Now in verse 18, And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. Now they begin to offload cargo. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle offboard. Now they're throwing the tackle overboard with our own hands. Now verse 20, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Now they begin to lose hope. Now you've got these guys who were seasoned a seaman. They are throwing things overboard, and now all hope is lost. Even the veterans are saying, look, I quit. I can't withstand this storm any longer. Now, verse 21, but after long abstinence from food, these guys were sick, they couldn't eat. Then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Thank you, Paul. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And so, where is Paul this entire time? I mean, what, what is he up to? These guys are all panicking uh, up, up on the ship deck, trying to do whatever they can to stop from crashing or being overturned, and yet Paul is nowhere to be found. Why? Because he's actually slipped down below the deck, and he is spending time with the Lord. He is spending his time in prayer while everyone else spends their time in panic. Now, once the Lord gives him a word, Paul comes up, and he gives what everybody loves to hear in a really tough situation. Hey, I told you so. <laughs> told you this is a bad idea. Don't you love that guy that has all the, all the answers in hindsight? Thanks so much. But Paul comes up and says, look, I told you this was a terrible idea. But he doesn't leave it there. And I think that's important for us to know. I'm with the I told you so, and I'm a wonderful hindsight prophet. And yet, if I don't have a word from the Lord, I think it's oftentimes better to just stay under the boat and stay quiet. Now, Paul gets a word from the Lord, and what he says is, uh, everyone's going to be saved. Yes, you should have listened to me, but here's what God actually has to say about this situation. Now, verse 23, For there stood by me on this night an angel of God to whom I belong in whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as he told me. Now you see the power of intercessory prayer. 
What Paul was doing was he was interceding on behalf of himself as well as the rest of this crew. And the reason I would encourage you to intercede on people's behalf, to step in and pray, is you will be amazed at the ships he will redirect and the waves that he will calm and the things that he will actually see us through. And here's the thing. God actually saved all these guys. His promise was to save every single one of them. And do you realize they weren't all Christians? <laughs> they were, these are a bunch of prisoners and bad dudes and cussing sailors and folks that wanted to beat and kill them. These were not great people, and yet God said, I'm going to save all of them. I'm going to deliver all of them as well as you. Now, you go back to what we read in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. What did God already tell Paul? You're going to go to Rome. So how is he going to go to Rome if he has a shipwreck and he dies in the middle of the sea? You see, what the Lord was doing is he was just reinforcing what he'd already told Paul was going to happen. And I think so often that's what happens when we decide to intercede and we lay our prayers down at the foot of the Lord. What he says is, look, uh, my word is always going to pass. There are some things, by the way, that God cannot do. And I know immediately that's going to sound like heresy. It's blasphemy. But there are some things God can't do. For example, God cannot lie. And he cannot not accomplish what his word says. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not. Every jot and every tittle will be accomplished. And so what Paul is saying here is the word of God is going to take place. What we often do is allow our fear, our circumstances to actually outweigh our faith. Yeah, but it looks like all is lost. Everybody's in a panic. What God says is, you're going to be delivered in the midst of this. Now, continuing, verse 26. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, when the 14th night, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And they had gone a little further, and they took soundings again. And it was uh, now 15 fathoms. And so they're now sensing they're coming close to ground. They begin to take it. This is an old-fashioned depth finder. They know they're getting closer to land. And so what we see is now the Word of God is beginning to be real for these men. They're realizing God uh, is all about deliverance and saving people. So here are some ways, by the way, that we can uh, seek to hear from the Lord. Just a few things to note down. Uh, first of all, uh, heeding your inner conviction. All of us have a conscience, right? We, we all have this, in, we have this internal dialogue we have with ourselves. Yes, I should do this. No, I should not. This is the right direction. This is not. And as you allow the Holy Spirit to come into your life, He will actually come alongside you and help that process of guiding you what is the right decision and not the right decision. And so heeding our inner conviction is important when we hear from the Lord. Also acknowledging the circumstances around us. I'm not saying we should be blind to all circumstances, but we should not be driven by the circumstances because here's the next piece that's key. Hold it up to Scripture. What is God what is he convicting you of? What is he trying to direct you in? And what does he say about it in his word? If his word is always going to come to pass, what does he say about it in his word? And you're going to have to spend time in it if you want to know what he's got to say. But it will always come to pass. And then finally, but not last, <laughs> allowing the Holy Spirit to actually direct us. 
Proverbs 16, verse 9 says that man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Let the Lord direct your steps. It's great to have a plan. It's great to want to execute it, but are you willing to allow the wind of the Holy Spirit to redirect in your life? And so holding things up to Scripture and then allowing the Spirit to actually communicate, these things are key to hearing from the Lord. Now then, verse 29. Then fearing, lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they let down the skiff into the sea, under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, verse 31, Paul said to the centurion soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, they cannot survive. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall. And so these guys began to treat this like the Titanic. They start to drop the emergency life rafts. It's time to bail off the ship. And yet here's the what Paul was trying to make clear about them abandoning ship. Jesus was on that ship. You see, I think that's oftentimes what I do. I want to jump off. I want to abandon. I want to run away. And yet Jesus is on the boat. That's what Paul's trying to make clear. And when, you, when we look at another storm in the New Testament, as Jesus is sailing there on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 8, he's sailing across the sea, a great tempest arises and the boat's being tossed this way and that way and the disciples man they are freaked out and so they wake the lord up they said do you even see what's going on and he says to them oh ye of little faith and then he calms the storm but the reality is if they decided to jump off the boat they would have been departing from the place jesus was actually in they were in the safest place they could have possibly been because jesus was on the boat now verse 33 and as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day. You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. In verse 35, And when he had said these things, he took bread, and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Verse 36, and then they were all encouraged and also took themselves. And so here's Paul in the middle of the storm. They just cut loose the life rafts. Any hope of getting out that way was gone. Uh, the anchors were failing. Everything was falling apart. And what does Paul do? But he has them sit down and actually declare victory. They declared victory before it was completed, you see. This would be like uh, last night in the basketball game where Duke is up by a few points at halftime uh, if they were to declare victory at halftime. Look, boys, we already won. Let's go to the national championship. Can you imagine the embarrassment, right, when you go out and realize you don't win the second half? But here's Paul. He's in the middle of the game. It, it's halftime. The seas are raging, and what does he do? He declares victory. Why? Because Jesus already said he won. You understand how true that is in our lives? Jesus has already said, you win. And so what Paul does to commemorate this, and I think this is interesting, worth highlighting in your Bible, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke the bread, and they began to eat. What does that sound like to you? They took communion. Sitting right there in the middle of a storm. The storm is still raging. The waves are hitting the side of the boat. Paul slows them down, focuses them back to take, to 
give thanks, to break bread together. And, and I want to encourage you today, especially as we have a communion Sunday, consider these things. What storm are you in the middle of? What thing is he allowing in your life? You're being tossed back and forth, and you're wondering, I don't see any victory. I'm at halftime. Maybe I'm in the fourth quarter. This thing looks like a disaster. Use this time to reflect. Use this time to realize he has already won. Jesus is bigger than your storm. Now, verse 37. And in all, there were 267 persons on the ship. So they had eaten enough. They lightened the ship, and they threw out the wheat into the sea. They've already cut their life preservers. Now they threw the balance of their food overboard. And in verse 39. When it was day, they did not recognize land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. In verse 40, And so they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosening the rudder ropes, they hoisted the main sail to the wind and made for shore. But verse 41, Striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast, remaining immovable. But the stern was being broken up with the violence of the waves. And so these guys did. They let go. They let go of the ropes that they held with their anchors, the things that they thought were actually holding them fast, which were not. They let go of the food they thought they had for provision, and they believed in Jesus. They believed what Paul said is that we are going to have a great victory. And I want to encourage you, if you're in a spot where you want to see a great victory in your life, I have found almost every time, if not every time, it has come at a great surrender. It has come at a moment where it's a hands up, Lord, I can't do it anymore. You're going to have to take it. And so great victory was had at the hands of great surrender for the Apostle Paul and for the rest of these guys. And everything they trusted in, everything they put their hope in was about to be dashed to pieces. Let's continue, verse 42. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them for their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and let go and, and get to land, excuse me. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Every single one of the 267 exactly I'd said made it to land. Now, it started with the soldiers saying, we need to kill the prisoners. This part of the story seems harsh, but remember, they're operating under Roman rule. And so for these Roman soldiers, under the guide of the centurion, if they lose a prisoner, Roman law said that they had to suffer the fate of any one of those prisoners. And so if any one of them escapes, these guys are thinking it's certain death for us. This is the reason why they had intended to put them to death. And yet Paul says, look, today nobody's going to die everybody's going to live exactly as God said they would. And so in the midst of the ship even being lost, here's what was not lost. The promise. The promise of Jesus Christ was not lost in the middle of this storm. And so as we think about this, if you're anything like me, you have to wonder, why does God allow storms in our life anyway? What reason would he have for allowing storms to take place? I'm so glad you asked. 
a few reasons why, five different ones that I want to bring up that tie back into Scripture for why God allows storms in our life. The first of which that we will come across is a storm of correction. Now, this uh, first storm type we see play out very well in the story of Jonah. You remember that from Sunday school, right? Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh, except Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, so he goes to Joppa's ship going the complete opposite direction. Now, we look at that and we go, why would Jonah be so bullheaded? Why would he just listen to the will of God in his life? Well, remember the capital city of Assyria, that's the Assyrians, was Nineveh. And if you look at history, what has happened at this point in Israel is the Assyrians have already come in and invaded northern Israel. They had taken capture of Jonah's hometown. And the Assyrians were a particularly nasty group of people. They loved as a hobby to uh, take people's skin and turn it into furniture. And uh, so not great people that you want to be captured by. And so no doubt for Jonah, his hometown had been captured by these people. Most likely they had killed his family. If he had any children, they were either enslaved or they were dead. And so when God says, you're going to go to Nineveh, that makes it a little more real. I don't know that I want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to go see those people saved. I want to see them suffer. And so Jonah heads the opposite direction, and what God does is he sends a storm. He storm of correction into Jonah's life. He also sends a big fish. Jonah gets thrown overboard. The big fish uh, swallows Jonah up, and then three days and three nights, he's in the heart of the deep. Now, if you think you're hard-headed, by the way, I don't know about you, but if I spend one day in the belly of a fish, maybe one minute, I am repenting immediately. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I quit. But Jonah, he's, he's one tough dude. I mean, he's, he's a stern guy. He spends three days before he's finally willing to repent. And as he repents, what the Lord does is he redirects him. He corrects him in his life. And he takes him right to the spot that Jonah was supposed to be in the first place. Now, what do storms of correction often look like in our life? They look like discipline. Here's the good news. If you're in a spot where you feel like you're, you're being corrected by the Lord, he's uh, changing your course, redirecting you. In uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? It's a beautiful thing. So if he's correcting you in your life, don't lament. Don't be broken down about it. He's treating you like a son or a daughter, which means uh, all the inheritance is yours. In this life, though, he is interested in correcting us and getting us on the right path. Now, the second type of storm we see in the Bible, you can find in the New Testament, is a storm of perfection or a storm of maturation. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000 miraculously. Again, another Bible story we remember. But directly following that, the disciples are told by the Lord to get in a boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And what they do is they get in the boat and they get stuck out in the middle of a storm yet again. Only for Jesus to have to walk out there, meet them, calm them, and do exactly what he said he was going to do. The boat goes to the other side. I didn't say go to the middle and sink. I said you're going to the other side. And so Jesus shows to him how much bigger he is than the storm at hand. He's maturing them in their Christian walk. Now you fast forward years later in Acts chapter 4, we see another group of 5,000. Only this time it's 5,000 new believers. They're being fed spiritually instead of being fed physically. And then after the feeding of the 5,000, what takes place is a storm. 
This time it doesn't look like a storm of wind and wave, but a storm of persecution. That the church begins to be heavily persecuted. In fact, they kill one of the deacons, Stephen. He becomes the first martyr. And so the church is now facing a massive storm. And yet these disciples, they know this storm. They've been matured by years prior. And they, they know, no matter what, that Jesus is bigger than this storm. And so rather than the church being stopped, the church actually spreads because of the maturity of these believers. You see, and that's what he so often does in a storm of perfection or maturation in our life. He is growing us. He is teaching us from one experience into the next so that we can grow in our walk with him. Now then the third type of storm is a storm of protection. If you go all the way back into the beginnings of your Bible in Genesis, we see the story of Noah, right? The famous flood and the animals come on two by two. And again, we're sticking with Bible stories this morning. We know that story of Noah. But do you realize that this storm, as much as this was about judgment for, for the world, it was also about protection for Noah. Because what the Lord says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was getting ready to judge the earth, but for Noah and his family, he had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I want to protect you from what's going on all around you. And Jesus himself, speaking of tribulation, he says that lest, the, lest all flesh be perish and die, the days had to be limited in the time of tribulation. Why? Because we are susceptible to being corrupted by the world around us. So oftentimes what he'll do is he'll actually send a storm into our life to protect us from something that we're not strong enough to resist. He's not going to give you anything in your life that you cannot either resist with what he's given you or give you an area to flee. He's going to give you an opportunity to, to flee from that. And so in the story of Noah and what he does so often in our lives is he sends a storm that we view as some kind of a disciplinary action, but the reality is he's actually looking to protect us. He's looking to move us to another place, to another spot, to actually see us prosper. And so, as I mentioned earlier, God is always more concerned about our character than he is our comfort. And so this is true for Noah as well with a storm of protection. Now then, fourthly, we see storms of glorification in the Bible. And, and to, for that, John chapter 9, Jesus here is being questioned by the Pharisees. And their question for him is about a man who was born blind. And they say to him, Lord, why was this man born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Somebody had to sin here for this man to have to suffer for all these years. He's probably over 30 years of age, and yet he is still here blind and begging and miserable. So who's at fault? And what the Lord says in verse uh, chapter 9, excuse me, verse 3, He says, why do you think, uh, excuse me, I'm in the wrong doggone book. No wonder that didn't make sense. John chapter 9. Jesus answers, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What he answers back is, this is not a sin issue. This is a glorification issue. God is going to be glorified through this man and through what he has had to endure in his life. And so many times this 
is the storm that we find ourselves in, that God is actually getting glory in the middle of our situation. Now, for this man, this is the tough part. Um, he spent 30 years or more blind. He, he, he could not see. His life was one of begging and poverty and struggles, and yet when Jesus intercepts him, he can see. And all those around, all those watching, get to actually see and they glorify God in the situation. Oftentimes this is us, and what we don't realize, what we fail to acknowledge, is that there are people watching. There are people all around watching. How are you enduring this situation? How are you navigating this storm? What is holding you up? What is keeping you afloat? It's the glory of God. It's only Him that you can explain it. And through that, He actually gets glory in that process. And so be encouraged in those storms. Now finally, we see in the Bible storms of direction. That here in chapter 27, Paul encounters this tremendous storm in his life. And they are shipwrecked. But they aren't just shipwrecked any place, any old place. They're shipwrecked in chapter 28 on the island of Malta. This is a place that Paul had never even had on his radar. He hadn't intended to go there. He didn't plan on planting a church there. He didn't even know that there were potential believers there. And yet Paul ends up on the island of Malta and a great revival takes place. You see, so many times we question the Lord with storms of direction. Why did I lose that job? Why did that relationship fail? Why are my finances in disarray? And yet what he is doing in our life is he is redirecting. He's giving us a storm of direction. He's allowing this thing in our life so that he can put us in a position to actually see many come to know him. And so, as we wrap up, these are different storms, and some of you are in the middle of some of those. And you may wonder, how do I know which one of these storms I'm in the middle of? Am I being corrected or perfected or protected or glorifying God or being directed? And I would tell you, personally, I have no idea. <laughs> but I would tell you, I know one who does. I would encourage you in the midst of a storm, as the ship's going back and forth and the waves are hitting, go back to the Word. Spend time with Him. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and communicate to you what he is trying to accomplish in your life. Because he is not a God of waste. You understand? There is not a storm that you're going to encounter, that you're in the middle of, that you've come through, that he is about to wait. There's no experience that we can have that he is going to just say, well, that was just for the fun of it. He is using every single one of these things for a reason in our life. Allow him to show it to you. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you even for the storms. Lord Jesus, we are coming up on a time where we're going to get to take communion here in just a few minutes. What a wonderful time we have to reflect. Oh, I think about what you went through so many thousands of years ago, and yet what a storm. How could anybody look at that storm and think any good was going to come out of that? Beatings and persecution and blasphemy and hatred and anger and then death. And yet out of that, resurrection and life and salvation and complete and total transformation. Father God, help us today to be able to focus on the transformative power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for what you've done in our lives. 
Lord, there are people in the midst of storms for sure in this room. And we're not sure exactly what kind of storm it is. And yet we are in the middle of it. Father, would you please come be near? Would you stand beside us like what you did with Paul? Encourage us that you know exactly what we're going through. Would you allow this time of communion to be like that communion was 2,000 years ago? Where the storm might have been raging and yet there was confidence in the victory that was at hand. So Lord, we lift all this up to you in, in Jesus' name. As Jake is uh, going to begin to play, I want to encourage you guys to just come up and take uh, a cup. You can head back to your seat and then we will take communion together. If it puts me in the fire, 
I rejoice cause you're there too I won't be formed by feelings I hold fast to what is true If the cross brings transformation I'll be crucified with you Cause death is just the doorway Into resurrection life If I join you in the suffering Then I'll join when you rise When you return in glory all the angels and saints, my heart will still be singing, and my song will be the same. Oh, Christ be magnified, let His praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified. The altar of my life, will Christ be magnified in me. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians addressing them on their lack of understanding with the Lord's Supper and exactly what he did for us on our behalf. In chapter 11 he says, And for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, Take and eat, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we thank you for the body which represents your bread, which represent, for the bread which represents your body. Lord, we thank you so much for the promise that this represents, your breaking on our behalf, your willingness to give everything when we had nothing to give, Lord. Please uh, allow this to be a time where you come into our hearts, into my heart, Lord. Examine what it is that I need to work on. Examine what it is I need to trust you in better. Lord, we thank you for the work you've already done. We proclaim victory this morning over this season of our life. And we look forward to the day you're going to return. And we remember in Jesus' name. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father, we thank you for the cup. We thank you for this that represents your blood that was poured out on our behalf. We thank you for giving yourself for us, Lord. We praise you, and again, we proclaim victory over these things that so easily ensnare us and trap us, but we know that positionally we are seated at the right hand of the Father, hidden in Christ Jesus. We thank you for that promise. So Lord, as we are dealing practically and on the daily in the mess, we are going to use this time right now to reflect on the work that you've already done on our behalf, and we praise you in Jesus' name.
And so we're going to stand and we're going to sing one more song proclaiming the victory that he's already had. In the eye of the storm you remain in control In the middle of the war you guard my soul You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm When the solid ground is falling out from underneath my feet Between the black skies and my red eyes I can barely see When a ring has been sold out by my friend and my family I can feel the rain reminding me In the eye of the storm You remain in control In the middle of the world You guard my soul You alone are the anchor When my sails are torn Your love surrounds me In the eye of the storm When my hopes and dreams are far from me And I'm running out of faith I see the future I picture Slowly fade away When the tears of pain and heartache Are pouring down my face I find my peace in Jesus' name In the eye of the storm You remain in control Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you guys. So, here we are. We've got storms going on, right? I want to encourage you to reflect on the one that is the anchor, right? The solid rock the foundation of Christ. Let him be the one that grounds you, that keeps you stable. I would encourage you even to at times take communion at home. You don't have to have a pastor to do that kind of thing. A little bit of juice and some bread. And and the point is you're communing with Christ. You're remembering the victory in the middle of the storm. All right, in the meantime, downstairs, there's tacos. So spend time communing with tacos as well. Uh, We hope you guys join us. Uh, today as we get to hang out as a family. God bless you. If you need prayer for anything at all, I'll be hanging